Talking with Tony Fitzpatrick is like binge-watching Deadwood. Smart, entertaining, dark, mercilessly truthful, eloquently vulgar. I could have talked to him all day about his collages, his poetry, his plays, his acting career, his beloved birds, his wide array of interesting and famous friends, presidential politics, music, movies. When a friend of mine heard I was interviewing him, she said I would love to be him for a day. I know what she meant. He seems busting at the seams with inspiration, and he follows through. He doesn't just have ideas. He makes things, and he gets them out into the world. And he himself is something of a work of art, not just because he's fairly covered in ornate tattoos, but also because he's created for himself a character that's every bit as funny, blunt, and complicated as those he chronicles in his New City Dime Stories column. During our conversation, he touched on the acting talent of his friend and hero, the legendary Studs Terkel. Tony said, Believe me, there was no small feat in Studs playing Studs. You know, I mean, playing an approximation of himself. And I couldn't help but think that Tony had taken a page there from his idol. He's bigger than life and one of a kind. I should point out that today's broadcast is probably a little more NSFW than most. So if you'd be offended by Donald Trump's presidential candidacy summed up as a rolling goat fuck of a campaign, or if it rubs you the wrong way to hear Rahm Emanuel characterized as an imperious little pork sword, or if you just happen to be Rahm Emanuel, this may not be the podcast for you. Otherwise, buckle up, sit back, and enjoy the real mayor of Chicago, Tony Fitzpatrick. I'm Ron Lazaretti, and this is the Hog Butcher Radio Hour. Putting on my cans, man. I'm a radio professional. Tell me, you, you do, I mean, you're a poet, you're a columnist, you're a playwright, you're an actor, and oh, by the way, you create these collages and etch, etchings, and well, what, what were you my first? Day, always an artist. I mean, that's always my first, that's my day job. That's what I do, you know, more seriously than anything else. It's, and how did you know... When I knew did when it I was occur to you seven. that you were an artist? When that I was early. about seven, yeah. I started drawing birds and naked women. And uh, the nuns had my mother drag me to the shrink. And uh, the shrink said, you know, he's a pain in the ass to be sure, but he's not nuts. It's like, you know, he draws <laughs> naked women with bird heads. It's like, I, I think it's actually, you, he's probably going to make you very proud someday, but he's probably going to get in a lot of trouble. What I really want is to get that nun in here. What the fuck is wrong with her, you know? Um, <laughs> so so I, uh, I, you know, I, I didn't like school ever at any juncture. I didn't like grade school. I didn't like high school. I attempted a couple of brief things of community college, and uh, I, I just didn't, uh, I always had the feeling they were wasting my fucking time, you know? I remember when I was in sixth grade thinking the only reason I'm here is because these assholes don't want me out on the streets, you know. And I would draw to just go into Tony world, you know. And I was very happy to be there, you know. And it's like I would tell teachers, look, leave me alone. Just let me draw and I won't bother anybody. And that's not the way it works. You're going to have to learn your phonics or your, you know, it's like, it's like, look, in kindergarten, I could already read. The other retards were learning the alphabet. You know, leave me the fuck alone. <laughs> you know, uh, 
But on the other and, hand, and, you, and, you, you, and, I've heard you say that you, you were quoted saying that you weren't born with any natural talent, you felt. No, I had to, I had to learn to draw, you know, and, and learn I did. I mean, once I started looking at things uh, and breaking them down into shapes rather than, you know, this isn't a bottle. This is a cylinder with a, a small ovular circle at the top and a bigger one at the bottom. And... and you know, some different shapes, almost rounded rectangles. Once I was able to break things into shapes, I could draw them, you know. But I wasn't one of those kids who immediately could could just draw, you know, naturally. I had to learn how to draw. And uh, I, I think that process made me want it worse. You know, like my first renderings of birds when I was a kid, there was always something that wasn't right. There was always something that wasn't... Um, uniformly consistent with what you would see in a photograph or, or um, and then as I learned how to render better uh, I began to realize that the things that were different and a little off made them more interesting so I started accentuating them and making you know my version uh, of those things and that kind of stuck with me ever since. I mean, even in high school, I flunked art three times, you know, because I wouldn't like make pep rally posters and shit like that. I made portraits of Jimi Hendrix. And uh, throughout high school, I began to realize that, you know, practicing all of the drawing with shapes and stuff like that, I began to be able to do really good portraits, you know. So I made some money doing that. I made a I made a drawing of Jimi Hendrix uh, when I was a junior in high school, and I knew a guy who had an offset litho press, and he worked in the commercial printing industry, and he printed like 400 of them for me. So I sold them for like five bucks each. So instead of you know working at uh, you know the hot dog stand or bussing tables or anything, I, I was selling my Jimi Hendrix posters. Every once in a while, somebody freaks me out and shows up with one. Who will you sign this? And it's like, yeah, I signed it then, but I'll sign it again. Um, but I also thought, this is the way that I'm going to liberate myself. Um, I'm going to draw whatever I want, and maybe somebody will like it, you know? And for years, there was always this crisis confidence. And then after I sobered up when I was 24 years old, I just thought, you know, this is the only thing that makes any sense to me. This is what I'm going to do. So I just drew pictures, you know. And luckily, the first opportunity and show that I had in New York, it was kind of a hit. And uh, a lot of... Uh, uh, film directors and rock stars and stuff started buying their work. And all of a sudden I went from being a $110 a week plus tips bartender in Villa Park to a career artist, you know. And then I got the Neville Brothers album cover and never did anything but, but make art for a living since. But along the way, I, I you know, people say, well, you're self-taught. It's like, yeah, I was not self-taught. I learned from Picasso, I learned from Van Gogh, I learned from the great Edward Hopper, I learned from the guy who drew Dick Tracy, Chester Gould, who's a genius and underrated. Mad Magazine, you know, the guys who drew Mad Magazine, you know, um, who could get away with the smart ass. You could hand something back to the assholes, you know. From the absolute beginning, you know, I got expelled from kindergarten, you know. Um, 
I did not like authority figures. You know, I just despised them. You know, um, well, Mad Magazine seems like the perfect yes. kind of. Oh God, it, ha- it has everything free. for you because it's it's got. You know, Al Jaffe just celebrated his 95th birthday. Wow, a couple of days I didn't know ago. he was still yeah. alive. I tried to figure out how to send a telegram, you know, but evidently they don't do that anymore. He's still alive. He, they had his 95th birthday, but I mean, the guys who worked for Matt were incredible renderers, you know, Don Martin, um, Harvey Kurtzman, uh, and also that and, skewed and, and, and now kind Drew of, Friedman, he, who's a phenomenal uh, artist. They had a little bit of a funhouse, oh yeah, kind of yeah. perspective. Or um, then Spy versus Spy, you know, it's like uh, yeah. Two guys eternally living to rat fuck each other, you know. It's, or, and I also loved the movie parodies because those. Yeah, they were great. They yeah, were like ma- instead of mash, it would be or, mush or, or something. Or a snappy answers to stupid questions. <laughs> that was my favorite. I had every one of those books, and then the little tiny drawings by Sergio Argonis in the bottom in the in the margins, yeah. which were like screamingly funny. I mean, mad. Uh, Mad was the father to a great many artists, you know. I mean, ideally, when when I was between about the age of uh, eight to fifteen, the idea was to be a comic book artist or a comic artist, um, and I didn't have the attention span for it. You know, it's like I love sequential art. I mean, I think Chris Ware is maybe one of the best artists living today you know Daniel Klaus those guys are astonishing but I did not have that gift for paying attention to the same kind of figure and and, uh, and I wish I did birds were the first things I ever drew you know and it gave me great joy uh, and uh, I you know since become very serious about um you know, preservation of birds. I've gotten to know a lot of ornithologists, including the great Joel Greenberg, who wrote a flock, a feathered flock across the sky, uh, about the extinction of the passenger pigeon. And we're now living in the most accelerated rate of extinction in human history. We are going to lose something like 300 plus species of birds over the next decade. And it's all about climate change. And I mean, anybody who denies climate change is a moron or a Republican, you know. <laughs> um, and uh, pesticides, which have wormed their way back into uh, usage. You know, companies like Monsanto. You know, um, uh, you know I mean, it, it, the, the, the canard that is the current presidential campaign, they're missing the big issue, and that is... In 20 years, will this planet be habitable? And birds are literally the canary in the coal mine. You, you know, the, your new city stuff, too, gives you the platform to talk about a lot of these things that concern you. Yeah, you know, you. I, I, and I didn't know whether I was going to make any kind of columnist at all. I, I, you know, You've been when, doing it a while now. Now about almost six years, you know. How did um, that start? Brian Heigelke was reading my blog, and he said, you know, I think maybe this would make a good column. And I said, okay, look, I'll try it for a while, and if at some point you don't think it's working, you can shit can it, you know. And uh, when I first took it, I mean, the idea was I had no intention of writing about politics. I mean, you remember that uh, guy who wrote in San Francisco, Tales of the City? Yeah. Uh, uh, Maupin, uh 
Armistead Malpin. Yeah. I mean, marvelous right. tales of his neighborhood. And, and um, I, I thought I'd maybe try to write something like that, you know, and, and in a weird way. Which you have. Yeah, a, a bit. But I had never had any intention of writing about politics. I, I, when Rahm Emanuel was elected here, you don't have the luxury of not having politics. I mean, uh, um, <laughs> I, I pulled out a quote, uh, your characterization of Rahm Emanuel as an imperious little pork sword. Yeah. Um, that's yeah. something you don't read in a lot of that's the other That's one of daily the nicer papers. things I've ever said about him. <laughs> that, uh, I think he's the most wretched human being we've ever elected a mayor, and that's, that's going somewhere. Have you met him? Uh, no, no. We've, we've had some eyeball encounters which were unpleasant, you know, but uh, no, I, I don't... Uh, you know, What's some you, guys, what is, what is some your guys want to sit down and get to know the guy. I don't. You right. Know, I, I mean, I watch him from a distance, and I believe that people, particularly politicians, they are what they do. Um, we have 20% of our citizens living under the poverty line. We have the highest murder rate by gunfire in the country right now. Uh, and he wants the George Lucas Museum on the lakefront. And, um, you know, he's taking a page from Richie Daly. You know, uh, you know, have a nice, beautiful downtown and fuck the schools and fuck the poor people. You know, um, I have nothing but contempt for him. I think, I think he's the worst person that was ever elected to that office. And boy, that is saying something. <laughs> you know, when you think of the collection of dildos that have sat in the mayor's chair over the last 150 years, uh, you know, you, you really, you know, to be the horse with the dirtiest ass in that crowd um, and holding your tail the highest uh, takes some brass, you know. God bless you. You have a way with words. Well, um, he's, you know, for me, it's never been adequately explained what he did for um, Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac. You know, he was on the board. Well, they sunk, the, they helped sink this country into the worst mortgage crisis uh, in human history. And, well, I was on the board. I'm sorry, that doesn't explain to me what exactly the, the duties were. Uh, and did you do business with people in the government? Uh, particularly people you worked with or for, um, you know, I, that was never clearly explained to me. I mean, I was very skeptical and uh, not happy when Rahm Emanuel announced his intention to become mayor of Chicago uh, because he always seemed to me like a backroom fixer, you know, the knife between your ribs. And... Uh, when countries burn, it is guys like him bringing the buckets of gasoline. You know, you say something in one of your pieces there, in, 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 uh, in a piece called Murder City, in one of your Dime Stories columns. Mm -hmm. You proposed something that I never heard anyone else propose, and you actually said that there were some people who told you that this could work. You said that what the city needs... Well, you, first you said what the city needs is more cops, more jobs, more education, and you probably the education would get, is the most would get the a lot of agreement. vitally key thing. Another thing, quit fucking around with the teachers, you know. Quit fucking around with their pensions. Um, 
you know, people, you know, Ram and his ilk are always blaming, oh, those greedy cops, those greedy firemen, those greedy teachers. Oh, you mean the people who hold a fucking civilization together? Here's a newsflash, Snapperhead. Your people were the ones who looted Chicago. You know, um, just take a look at the, you know, the parking deal. Right. Where they basically sold the, the parking rights, the meters, for a fucking pimp roll, uh, you know, for 30 years. And, um, you know, every camera in the city catches you, you know, maybe going through a yellow light. But they don't seem to catch anybody shooting anyone. Um, it's the fleecing of the citizenry. You know, uh, I, I, I don't like this. I don't think that they pay attention to the root causes of poverty. And I'm telling you, education is it. Well, towards that end, you talk about, in terms of, of course, all this takes money. You suggested something that basically is selling bonds that invest in the city. Exactly. And you buy a share, you buy, you know, when I talked to two bankers, and it could work, you know, you buy a share in uh, the city of Chicago, a futures share in the city of Chicago, you pay a hundred, two hundred, or five hundred dollars. And that share matures in 10 years and you get like a 6% return, you know, and it's in a very, and, and you have a bank regulated. You do not hand this to the assholes at City Hall. You don't hand this to somebody running for office. You have this regulated by the feds. Uh, um, that way, those bonds will mature and they're only to be spent on education. You know, if you think for a second that education is expensive, try ignorance. Uh, um, you know, and the first thing Rat Boy did was close 50 schools, and fire 600 teachers and 600 educational administrators. You know, this was his lesson for getting his ass handed to him in uh, the te last teacher strikes. Now he thinks he's got them pared down enough. And I'm going to tell him something in very plain fucking English. Labor dies hard in this city. The history of the American labor, laborer and unions was written in Chicago. You know, four of them went to the gallows for the eight-hour workday, the 40-hour week. Um, the Pullman strike. I mean, year after year... When push comes to shove, labor's going to win because this is a city of people who work jobs. And, you know, there are times when I just want the citizenry to just fucking storm City Hall. Just take it back and throw the assholes out. Throw the fucking bastards out on their heads, you know. Um, this guy particularly... I thought after the little Quan McDonald shoot, shooting, he should have stepped down. I think an honorable person would have. But, you know, right when you think politics can't get any grimier, you know, uh, you know, there are more dead kids laying all over the city, you know. You were in Chirac. 400 a year. You were in the Spike know. Lee film. Yeah. What from that, did that experience... 
yeah. enlighten you in any way? Yeah, or because what, I worked. I, we worked in in Englewood and uh, Auburn Gresham, and uh, I was I spent a lot of time around uh, some time around Michael Flager, Father Michael Flager, you know, and uh, this guy walks those streets every Friday and Saturday night, and. Uh, tries to create peace in uh, a neighborhood where there's probably 40% unemployment, young men, um, not a lot of businesses opening that are hiring people. Um, I mean, what I learned is that if you were a person of color and poor in Chicago, you're in exile. And... uh, the experience with Chirac kind of drove that home. You've had a few things to say uh, about Donald Trump lately. Um, oh, he's a blowhard and an asshole. You know. Yeah, that was. The, those were the, the things. The fact that anybody thinks that this man is presidential timber is laughable, and it would be funny were it not so goddamn serious right now. Yeah, uh, you were at the rally, right? Uh, oh, you bet I was. That um, I, I railed on Facebook against people who were uh, signing a petition to cancel his speech. Absolutely I said, no, right. we, don't, we don't shred the First Amendment for Donald fucking Trump. You know, absolutely, we honor the right of him to speak. But we also can show up. And, and do you think he had any intention? And we showed up. No. Not ever for appearing? A, not for a minute. You know, I mean, I think he took. I think he's that cynical that he took a look at the demographic of where USC was located. Mm-hmm. It's located three blocks from the biggest neighborhood, full of people he refers to as rapists. Um, the most diverse student body of any college in the city. I, he knew exactly what he was doing. Well, did but then you did know? that play out the way he wanted it to play out? I think it did. I mean, I in some did. way, do you regret going as though no, you were a player in that? So you, it wasn't like all. that. Because we sent him a message. Do not come back to this city. Mm-hmm. Your ideas are un-American and they're unwelcome. You know, and, and the idea that his kind of bigotry has any currency whatsoever in the current dialogue is, uh, makes me ashamed. What, what, what does the phenomenon of Trump have... What does that say you know about where we're at? He is the Frankenstein monster of the GOP. They have been saying all the things Trump say by inference, by implication, with a wink and a nod. And he's such a cement head. He, the toxic shit just flows from him. You know, he is the monster they created. He's the monster they deserve. You know, from Reagan on, it's always, well, you know, Reagan always railed against, well, there's this welfare queen in Chicago, you know? And what he was actually saying is, hey, there's some black lady in Chicago, you know, uh, who's fleecing all the white people, you know? That was, that was what he was actually saying. That was what he was inferring. Um, Donald Trump is the result of somebody not able to speak in the code of the GOP. I think Cruz is every bit as loathsome as Donald Trump, you know. And the other guy, uh, Kasich, he only looks sane when he's standing next to the sphincter twins. (laughs) Uh, Trump and Cruz. Um, 
you know, he, he's a moral imbecile as well. Look, if it were up to me, they would take Ted Cruz, Donald Trump, John Kasich, lock him in one of those plastic porta shitters, light it on fire, and kick it down a fucking hill. I hang my hope on, on Senator Sanders. Yeah, I, I was going to ask you about that. I believe that he absolutely believes in the spirit of fair play. Um, uh, it's the first time I think I'll ever, I've ever cast a vote for a guy who I thought was kind of in the same boat I was, you know? Um, I think he's decent, honest, and uh, very, very rare hmm. in that landscape. So many of the people who I admire the most are passionate about Bernie, Bernie Sanders. Yeah. 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 I mean, yeah, I, I you know, and, and I applaud Susan Sarandon and Rosario Dawson who are taking all kinds of heat from their own contemporaries and their own peers. Uh, I say, hey, you know, say it loud, say it proud. I think this is a really good man. I think this. Men like him have been absent from the political landscape for so long, we no longer recognize them. These used to be the guys we sent to Washington. You know? Uh, the Everett Dirksons, the, you know, uh, Paul Simons, the decent human beings who uh, believe passionately in pu public service. What saddens me is that how many people I know, uh, in my age and of my generation, you know, and I, I grew up in the 70s, and, and that, that crew didn't do a fucking thing for the world. They, you know, slipped into their nine-to-five jobs, their gray flannel suits, and conformed. You know, uh, the biggest generation of pussies ever born, you know. <laughs> um, I'm, I'm embarrassed and ashamed of them that the rhetoric of, of, of Ted Cruz and Donald Trump, these mediocre minds, uh, find so much currency among my generation. I mean, it, it, it horrifies me. There are people that I know that you admire, many of whom that I, I think you knew, and I, these are people that fascinate me. Um, it's funny because in some ways I've seen, maybe it was an old Chicago Reader piece, where you know you're kind of character or thought considered yourself an outsider, had a hard time fitting in, <clears throat> and yet I kind of see you as a guy who is out there in the world and knows a lot of very interesting people, and that fits in very well with a lot of folks. I'm kind of like one of those bugs that people have never seen before, and they're, they're kind of interested. It's like you know. <laughs> Uh, is that walking, what it is? Uh, walking Gordian knot of contradictions. I, I think in part, you know. But, but I you, mean, I, 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 and you seem to know people, uh, or to have known people along the I've way that fortunate. I would love to have known uh, in the way that you did. I spent yesterday with my friend of thirty-five years, Jonathan Demi. That's was, one of the guys I wanted to ask you about. He was in town uh, yesterday, and uh, one of his kids is an artist and goes to school here, and. Uh, and you got to know Jonathan Demme by virtue of the fact that he bought some of your yeah, art yeah, originally? Yeah, some of my work. You know? And then didn't you do some... I met some him and Buzz the same night. Buzz Kilman from yeah, the old... Yeah, because him and yes. Buzz grew up together in, in, in Florida. Okay. And uh, he bought a bunch of my work, and I saw him at uh, the Cat Club in New York, and I walked over and um, I said to Buzz, who I didn't know was Buzz at the time, I said, ah, Jonathan Demme? And he goes, yeah. You know, so I walked over to Demme, and Buzz thought I looked menacing. So he's standing behind me with a beer bottle by the neck. 
<laughs> and so I introduced myself, and me and Demi exchanged pleasantries. I turned around and at Buzz. He's got the beer bottle by the neck, you know. I said, what are you thinking, you know? <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, you know, Jonathan, without him, I probably don't have the career that uh, I eventually had. What a great know? filmmaker. I mean, Yeah, yeah, he's marvelous. I mean, Stop yeah. Making Sense, I think, is the best concert movie yeah, ever. You bet. And he's he's make he's spending a lot of time making amazing documentaries now. Huh. Um, one about uh, a, a young man, uh, what Hayes knows, who chases down uh, the pesticides and stuff in his environment that's killing the natural environment that sustains the people, uh, mostly migrant Mexican workers, and uh, the guy's heroic, you know. Um, Jonathan did a lot of work about New Orleans, you know, uh, post Katrina. He's, yeah, he's one of my heroes, and and and, and just uh, a phenomenal human being, you know. Um, and I've I've been fortunate to be his friend for over thirty years. So. Didn't you also do some album cover art for him? Yeah, did something, something wild. wild. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, that must have been a great opportunity. It was cool, you know, because it was it was actually people always think that the first album cover I did was Neville Brothers. Right. No, I actually did the soundtrack for Something Wild, which then got me the Neville's job a couple of years later. Um, and I, ironically, the Neville's. Uh, had had a record before that called Fio on the Bio. Sure. And I saw that and I thought, you know, whatever you do, rehire this guy. This guy's great. Who I didn't know at the time, and he's since become a very dear friend named Lou Beach, who's just one of my heroes. And uh, they said, well, they wanted something different for Yellow Moon. And I went down to New Orleans, which became the beginning of my love affair with that city. Um, and Charlie and uh, Art and uh, Aaron said, you know, what's very important about this record is the history of the city. You know, we want you to take it seriously. They gave me a copy of Up From the Cradle. And I became immersed kind of in the uh, history of the city of New Orleans. It just fascinated me, you know. From the, from the time Buddy Bolden came walking out of the swamp with that steel coronet and kind of invented jazz and the very young Louis Armstrong and Jelly Roll Morton heard it and carried it forward. The Nevilles are kind of the, the result of the long math of all of those musical idioms. And it was exciting to kind of watch that history happen. Sure. You know, and walk into Benny's, uh, which is now no longer there, um, and see, uh, Dr. John, a couple of the Nevilles, Randy Newman tuning up for wow, uh, for various Mardi Gras shows. You know, I mean, it's just I, I, I feel like I, I've been so fortunate to be able to look through a couple of those little keyholes. You know, um, how, how did you meet Lou Reed? I met Lou through uh, Penn Gillette from Penn and Teller. Um, Penn is one of my big collectors. Uh, when Steve Dahl sold his collection of my serial killer slates, Penn bought them right away. And Penn and I became pals because I, uh, I made a drawing of Houdini that he really liked, and it was sold to someone else. And the first time he called me up, he said, Who owns that? 
who wants to, that guy should fucking die. That should only belong to me, you know. And right away, immediately, I loved the guy. And I said, you know, I have a different idea for a Houdini, and I, I'll, I'll make it, and I'll show it to you, and if you'd like it, I, I'll certainly deliver it to you. And we became very quick friends, and um, uh, he mentioned that he, him and Lou Reed were pals. And I said, hey, this is a really beautiful little etching. I want you to give it to Lou and just tell him I'm a fan. So he did that, and, and Lou called me and said, the next time you're in New York, you have to come and see me, you know? And I sat down with him a few weeks later, and it was like I'd known him my whole life. I mean, he was one of those rare, um, you know, uh, feisty, you know, um, you know, really courageous guys, you know? I mean, uh, there was, Lou was only like himself, and I think that's what these guys all had in common for me. You know, Jonathan Demi and, and, and Lou Reed and Pendulette. They, they never reminded me of anyone else. Lou was only like Lou, you know. There are a million guys who wanted to be like Lou, you know, but there was only one Lou Reed, you know. And uh, thoughtful, deep, funny, you know. And, and they had a contentious relationship with, with, with the press. I mean, in... And I saw it a couple times because very often you get some hip, you know, features writer who's like, "Well, I'm going to cut this guy down to size," and Lou, Lou would not be anybody's fool for a minute, you know. And you know, he knew how the game was played, and he just wasn't playing. You know, he was not going to be condescended to and and talked down to by you know some asshole who writes for a rock magazine. He, he wasn't he, having it. He strikes me as a guy who's whatever his whatever his more mainstream success might have been, just happened. But that wasn't his aim. That he wasn't really exactly trying uh, to satisfy. No, no, no. I, I'm. I I think the feeling I always got is that it was a kind of stardom that uh, allowed him to make the the art that he wanted to make, but. As for the rest of the trappings, I don't think he much knew what to do with them. You know, I mean, Lou was very much about writing poetry, listening to poetry, reading poetry, um, making music. Uh, you know, it, it, it fairly consumed him. I mean, if you take a look at the body of work, Lou made a lot of records. You know, Lou made a lot of music, you know, and it's like critics would jump up and down on other stuff and only and then a few years later laud the very thing that they condemned you know um i, I, I would i would think that would make you as an artist distrust any of that kind of stuff <clears throat> distrust when they love you and then distrust you know what when they turn lou lou taught me the best thing be able to shut out the noise be able to not listen he said, especially to the praise, make the work you have to make, you know. Um, I mean, I used to have a storefront on Damon Avenue and yeah. people in and out all day. And there's a reason now I'm behind a couple locked doors, you know. It's like, as you get older, um, being able to see the thing without interruption, without the noise, you know, uh, becomes more important. You know, um, and that's what I learned from him. And he was, he was, 
man, I got I got to see him make a couple of great records. You know, I think "Set the Twilight Reeling" is such an underrated record. Um, the New York record just broke it all open for me. I mean, it was one of those. There's a few touchstones in the things I love in in rock and roll that uh, just kind of shifted the gear into into a better conversation, a higher level. And the New York record was one of those. It was a novel written in songs, you know, and uh, it spoke to the despair and uh, uh, the bigotry rated, uh, uh, rooted in class that Lou saw, you know, he could see the trees for the forest, you know. Uh, the hatred of, you know, like people who were black or people who were brown. Yeah, that's awful in itself, and and it's also so much window dressing. You know, the real, uh, the real evil is the have and have not. Tell me a little bit about uh, your friendship with Roger Ebert. You know, I got hired by the Loop when me and Buzz were doing driving reviews, and uh, one time the Loop had an event. It was a, a Christmas thing, a Christmas Carol kind of knockoff thing, and it was on. Noticed, was it on the radio? Yeah, or? yeah. It was okay. it was Steve's and Stephen Gary and stuff, um, and. Uh, I noticed a couple of Chicago Bears taking pulls off Jack Daniels. And I was sitting next to Roger, and I said, man, you know, a few years ago, that's me. So Roger said, uh, you're a friend of Bill's? I said, yeah, seven years. He goes, I got 13, you know? And, and uh, we often sat in uh, the same screening rooms for the screenings. Sure. For, for the pictures. Over on Lake Street? Yeah, yeah. and State Neary, mm -hmm. Space. Um, and this is at the point where my work started becoming more well-known. I was having shows in New York and New Orleans. And in each town, I, I kind of needed to know where there was a meeting. You know, at the time, I went to meetings religiously. And uh, I would, you know, pull Roger aside and I'd say, you know, I gotta go to New York. I'm, I just want to make sure I know where some meetings are. Jesus, he had five in each borough. You know, this one starts. And uh, you know, and when I get back, he would check in with me and he'd say, "Did you make that meeting at St. Anne's?" And I'd say, "Yeah, yeah, I was there." You know, and the, what nobody knows about Roger is he did this for a lot of people. Roger, 12-step more people. More people owe their sobriety to Roger uh, than you can count, you know. Um, and uh, despite the fact of the, the kind of on-air banter and boorishness between him and Gene, um, he was one of the most deeply decent human beings. You know, he had a huge ecumenical, inclusive heart, you know. He was... Uh, you know, when when the Sun Times was about to go out on strike, um, Roger was ready to walk the picket line and walk out with it. You know, and that's that's what that's when they caved and gave him what they wanted. You know, I mean, he was well, he was the franchise, exactly, right? I mean, at that exactly. point, he it was amazing was, to me that he always stuck he was with them. the Babe Ruth and Lou Gehrig all rolled into one for them. Right. You know, uh, and he was a union man. You know, his father was a union guy. You know. Um, Roger had a great deal of, of empathy for working people. 
you know uh, you wouldn't think it because it, he was incredibly eloquent you know um nobody ever wrote better 900 words than Roger Ebert you know i mean just uh the ability to uh, put into words what i was feeling about things precisely. but but couldn't yeah. quite yeah. articulate yeah. it was always amazing to me that's why I would love to read. I would never read his well, reviews he, before I see a movie. I would read his reviews after yeah. I saw the movie to understand it better. Yeah, you know, I, I damn near rarely disagreed with him on movies. Um, he always struck me, too, as a guy who walked into the movie, unlike maybe a lot of critics, like he walked into a theater wanting to like the movie like that he was every time the lights went down they were excited to be there yes both, both gene and roger they huh. were you know once in a while you saw that like that like 12 year old kid is like getting to go to the movies you right know? And, I, and i think um i think you know roger being from urbana illinois i mean and going to the movies that you know the african queen and and, and those things seeing those on a big screen I can imagine what that was like to a kid from the Midwest. I mean, I know how I felt when I saw Dr. Fives, you know. Vincent Price. At the DuPage Theater in Lombard, you know, or the Villa Park Theater, you know. I remember seeing those movies and uh, and being transported. And then I remember my senior year seeing One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. Oh, thinking, yeah. Okay, yeah, I'm not nuts. We were lucky to live through a pretty good era of movies, you oh, know, the at, at a very formative I mean, age. A, taxi Driver. <clears throat> I mean, I remember seeing these films and thinking, this is something of the right now. This is something that can only be made right now. Yeah. You couldn't have made it 10 years ago, and maybe 10 years from now you won't be able to, but this is... I just heard Friedkin, William Friedkin on the air talking yeah. about, you know... Uh, Another great filmmaker. Yeah, and a Chicago guy, guy, WGN TV guy. The funny thing he said that I thought, wow, he nailed it in two words. He said, I can, in two words, boil down uh, the movies of the 70s. And those two words are moral ambiguity. Yeah. And I thought, yeah, that pretty much applies across the board. But you speak a lot about that. You know, even even films you don't know really well, like uh, Hardcore. Uh, that Paul Schrader wrote and George C. Scott yeah, deserved daughter, to walk right. away with an Oscar for right. um, uh, You know, of course, Taxi Driver, um, Vanishing Point. Uh, there was, it was a decade of movies about individuals. So why did, what made that go away so fast? I the mean, 1980s, I, I, Ronald Reagan, the go-go 80s, Greed is Good, um, the uh, need after the turmoil of the 60s, the ambiguity of the 70s, the need for the conformist 80s. And it's an abysmal decade for the arts. It's awful, you know? The other guy I wanted to ask you about was Studs Terkel. Yeah. I mean, that, that to me probably... Am I My wrong hero. in assuming that he's the guy for you if you really had to whittle it down to a guy? Yeah. He had Ronald Reagan's number right from the beginning. And he said, you know, kid, he goes, my big thing with Reagan is, uh, you know, first of all, he's a bum actor. He's, a, he's just a bum actor. He's, 
And then second, the first thing that pisses me off about him, exactly, lousy yeah. actor. And, you know, the thing is, is that Studs was actually a very good actor. You know, I mean, he did it kind of part time, but he did a lot of theater in Chicago. He was a fine actor. Well, even know? in his show, right, Studs Place or whatever. Yeah, yeah, he was. Uh, and and believe me, there was no small. Uh, feet in studs playing studs, you know, I mean, uh, you know, playing an approximation of himself. Um, I, what I so admired about studs is how he was always on the right side of history, you know. He, he rode the train with the Freedom Riders. He stood up for uh, women's rights, gay rights, um, stood steadfast against every kind of bigotry, stood up to the blacklist, you know. Um, he was something. How, how did you come to meet him? I made him a painting of Nelson Algren when Nelson Algren died when I was drunk, you know. <laughs> <laughs> and it's a lousy painting, you know. But but he loved the spirit of it and invited me to the memorial. And, and uh, I got to see all these guys who knew Algren, you know, who was such a... You know, like Studs, uh, such a hero to me. You know, it's like uh, Algren, Howard Zinn, Studs Terkel. They, you know, anybody, uh, you, you know, the history books that I'd read up to that point were, were the lies everybody agreed upon. Nobody ever talked to the um, Lakota Oglala Sioux uh, after they'd lost uh, the wars, you know, after they'd been... Um, relegated to reservations. Nobody ever talked to the the union leaders who'd been put down before the labor union finally took hold. And these guys spoke to that history, you know. And, and I was fascinated uh, as an artist with the hobo alphabet. In fact, my play This Train was, right. was about that. Um, and Suds knew it by heart, you know. Suds could, could show you every single idiomatic diagram and he knew it because at the age of 10 or 11 his mom ran the Grand Wells Hotel which was kind of a you know a cut above a transit motel for for working people moving in and out and there were lots of guys who were just one step out of being hobos you know who'd, who'd come to Chicago and the reason people came to Chicago was to get a job that's what played here. I mean, you look at the streets on the south side, exchange, commerce, you could tell what was on the mind of people who came here. This is where you could get work. You could work in uh, the slaughterhouses. You could work in the stockyards. You could work in the railroad. You could work in the steel mills. You know, this is a place where people could find work, no matter who they were. Um, it, it was why we were such a big hit with immigrants because there are people who come before and they were able to find a job they were able to feed themselves you know studs understood that history that 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 the american quilt was you know woven together with every race and creed and color you know and were he alive today he would be horrified by the bigotry uh, directed at uh, our Muslim brothers and sisters, you know, making them the boogeyman. The last thing I want to touch on is what I think you called, you know, your your flirtation with the big adios. Yeah. So, 
you had a pretty scary uh, experience. Yeah, it was, you know, I mean, we didn't really say anything about it when the whole thing was happening. I, I didn't, when I got to the hospital, I didn't realize how much trouble I was in. And uh, um, they tried stents, you know, they tried to the sure. I couldn't get them in. I had 95% blockage. And uh, the doctor came in and he said, you're going to have a quadruple bypass. We're doing it tomorrow. Um, you have a 95% chance of, you know, living through this. He goes, there's something else going on in there. I can hear it. I don't know what it is. He goes, so I would caution you at that. And uh, 95% chance sounds great. Sounds like a slam dunk until it's your number, <laughs> you know. <laughs> and uh, a devout uh, Muslim surgeon from Egypt named Khaled Abdelhadi took my heart out of my body, repaired it. And my mitral valve, which was ruptured and uh, restored me to life, you know. It's a weird feeling knowing you owe your life to somebody, you know. And these, this group of doctors uh, were just amazing. Um, St. Mary's handles more Medicare and Medicaid cases than any hospital in the state. Which means that about 80 to 85% of the people who, who are treated there have no way of paying for them their treatment. The only reason I did is because of Obamacare, you know. Um, my wife gave me two St. Joseph's baby aspirins, which staved off the heart attack. I actually never actually had the attack. Once they got me in there, they realized that uh, they were going to have to do radical surgery pretty quick, you know. And I mean, to give you an idea of how little I understood about how much trouble I was in when the, when the ambulance guy got there, the baby aspirins had already kicked in and the kind of dull but insistent pain in my chest had stopped. So I said, well, I'm going to go to work, you know. The guy in the ambulance goes, you're not going to work. He goes, buddy, you can't see you. I can see you. You're getting in the ambulance. You're going to the hospital. And, uh. I was lucky, you know, I was so fortunate. And I realized that Obamacare, Muslims, immigrants, women, I fairly owe my life to them. So the whole menu. So everybody that Donald Trump hates basically restored me to life, you know. And plus, you know, my kids, you know, who took walks with me, you know. I mean, the, the big thing about a month after I got out of the hospital was when I was able to walk around the block, you know. And uh, I came very close to dying, you know. Um, you know, I, I, you said in a piece, I think it was a piece about the devil, uh, baby devils, I think it's called. Yeah, yeah. You, you mentioned in there that you have no imaginary friend in the sky. Yeah. That you're, um, that, yeah, but you know what? Some very <clears throat> religious people saved my life you know and I think maybe I if if there's a deity if there's an overriding force in the universe I'm just not meant to understand it you know but some very very staunchly religious people you know seriously held my heart in their hands and made it work you know um how changed do so, you feel about all to I disparage always. what they believe right. is I have no business doing that. I see. You know, I'm, I'm I still I I don't think there's any shame in saying it. I just don't know. You know, mm -hmm. um, I uh, 
I'll tell you what completely affirms my belief that human beings are the most amazing things in the world. Kindness and, you know, everyone who so much has brought me uh, a Tylenol in that hospital took such amazing care of me, were so kind to me, you know. Um, my uh, physical therapy um, nurse, Dorota and Big Paul, and the people who got me up and moving and uh, and helped me, you know, chart my nutrition uh, course. There are no more uh, hot dogs and big bloody steaks and uh, no more cigarettes and, you know, and none how, of that. How anymore. are you with all that? You know, I I feel better than I've felt in, you know, 30 years. You know, I, I, I basically got a new heart out of the deal. And uh, uh, I feel incredibly indebted to that institution, that hospital, you know, because they don't turn anyone away. Mm-hmm. And they don't just kind of stabilize people and then kick the can down the road. They take care of people. And uh, Do you feel transformed in any way by this? Yeah. I mean... It restored my faith in my fellow man and my sense of obligation to my fellow man. Next up on the Hog Butcher Radio Hour, a piece by the sketch comedy group Brick. The Hog Butcher Radio Players present Dictation. Good morning, Mr. Milton. Oh, hello there, Gertie. Coffee? Mmm, peel the old eyelids back, eh? Yep. I can see some slip there, Gertie, you flirt. (laughs) Excuse me, Mr. Milton. Well, that's okay. Lots of correspondence, lots of it today. Let's make this fast. Is that pencil ready? Yes, it is. Item A. Item A. To a Mr. Charles Space Rubin, R-U-B-I-N, no street address, at the Yahoo Com. Hmm. Commonwealth? Commonwealth. 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 Yes. Regarding working at home. Dear Mr. Rubin, received your letter dated June 14th and must decline your offer. Our work is such that we have no use for at-home laborers. Sincerely, Wally. Did you write Wally? (laughs) Of course not, sir. Wallace Milton, Vice President. You're too quick for me, cutie pie. On to item B. To a Miss First Initial A. Rollins. No street address, again, at the HeadSmart Commonwealth. I got it. Two L's in Rollins there, Gertie. Regarding college diplomas. Dear Miss Rollins, received your letter dated June 14th and must decline your offer. I already have my college diploma from one state university and am in no need of further education. Regards, Alan Reed. Did you write Alan Reed? Wallace Milton, Vice President. You are my son. Shine. To a Mr. V6812T60. That's a lowercase t there, Gertie. No street at the Gamale Commonwealth. Hmm. Got it. Regarding fix your credit today. Dear Mr. 60, Gertie, let's carbon copy accounting on this one. Received your letter dated June 14th. I'm afraid you've got the wrong firm. Best of luck in your search, etc., etc. Sincerely, Wallace Milton. If I was a single man, Gertie, you'd be a married woman. <laughs> to a Mr. Doty, no first name, no address, at the I'm a bitch Commonwealth. Huh. I'm a bitch. Must be Russian. 
Regarding Wallace Milton, that's one word, Gertie, and Wallace has one L. Hmm. Wallace Milton, comma, watch Masha and Helen take care of business from the back end. Dear Mr. Doty, thank you, but no thank you, comrade. I've got all the secretary I'll ever need in one Miss Gertrude J. Walters, 1133 East Victoria Drive. Gertie, are you giving him your address? No, sir. Period after need, sincerely, Wallace Milton. Okay, Gertie, to a Don, a Mr. Don. No address, no commonwealth. Regarding increase your penis two inches. Dear Mr. Don, thank you for the offer. A self-addressed stamped envelope is enclosed. Sincerely, Mollis Wilton. Wallace Milton. No, Gertie. Mollis Wilton. Sign it. Mollis Wilton, Communications Manager Sales. But you're... We have a lot of correspondence today, Gertie. Lots of it. Okay. To a Mr. Emmonstorm. Nothing following. Regarding, get a cock so big you'll need a leash to walk it down the street. Dear Mr. Emmonstorm, I'll take 12. What is it, Gertie? Mr. Milton, I feel funny. So do I, Gertie. So do I. <clears throat> Regarding, fuck her in the ass till her eyes pop out. Many thanks to the Hog Butcher radio players and Brick Ensemble members, Sue Salvi and Tim Mason, for that bit of good, clean fun. They are my son. Shine. And of course, big thanks to Tony Fitzpatrick for talking with me. And just a song before we go, this one by a hero of mine. It's the late, great James McCandless with the title track off his last record, This Is Lucky Day. Thanks for listening. Bring me the sunrise in a teacup And a bucket full of rain Peyote in a wikia This could be my lucky day Phantoms on a vision quest Mountains of wet clay Danger in the wilderness Run away, cast away Father in a suit and vest Noble and tall Mother in her wedding dress Slow motion walking down the hall Father, won't you wait for me? Mother, I'm reborn Running recklessly Crash into the hallway door Adobe Hut Apparition side by side 
Thunderbird a doodlebug Laughing and crying God sings in the hearts of men Flashlight, a frightened cat Poets on a dusty shelf Waiting for Gatto Truth in every word Pulse pounding like a tremolo Exhaustion in the chair Starry, starry night Frostbite in my head Now I'm a younger man Comprehension within grasp Everything is everything the future the present and the past sunrise in a teacup a bucket full of rain Everything is everything This could be my lucky 